Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Slim Radio News, the news podcast where we take you in-depth into some of the week's biggest news stories. My name is Niall and I'm joined today by my co-host Ricardo. Hello Ricardo. Hello Niall, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing okay, how are you? I'm good, I'm excited to be part of this new Slim Radio News, we are not Yuba Radio's news no, anymore. No, indeed, uh, and a rebranding and a fresh start just in time for the end of 2020 and hopefully a fresh start in all other ways. Yeah, did you see the the rebranding video? Yes, I did. Yeah, Very so good. Cool. Shout out to the people who did it because it yeah, was yeah, really, yeah. really cool. Yeah, and if you haven't seen that, check out Slim Radio on YouTube, on Instagram, and you can find that there. It's very funny. Yeah, it is. Um, okay, so this week's stories, we have three stories for you this week, listeners. Uh, first, we're going to be taking you to Iran, where there has been an assassination of a, another top Iranian official by outside forces. We're then going to explore Nestle, your perhaps favourite food brand, who once again have found themselves on the wrong side of morality. And lastly, we're going to finish with a court case in the UK, which stands to fundamentally change transgender rights for young people in the, in Britain. Um, but let's start with Iran. Ricardo. Yeah, as uh, you said, uh, another attack to an Iran top official. Uh, this case was uh, Iran's most uh, senior nuclear scientist, called, with a really difficult name, Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. Sounded good to me. Yeah. <laughs> he was uh, assassinated near the capital, Tehran. He was shot in his car. It what seems to be an ambush. And he was the key figure in Iran's nuclear program and intelligence agencies worldwide considering him the father of the Iranian bomb, uh, this um, secret nuclear Iranian uh, plan. And the thing is, this has occurred in a context of rising tension because of the concern about um, the increased amount of enriched uranium that the country is producing now. And as you know, enriched uranium is a vital component for military nuclear weapons. So the murder of uh, Fakhri can be seen as, as someone C4 to put brakes to on Iran's forward momentum. Right. And just to clarify, we don't know if Iran has a nuclear weapon. No, we don't know, but, you know, all these secret agencies always talk about a secret uh, nuclear program, and apparently this guy was the, the mastermind behind it. Yeah, and you can understand why the prospect of an Iranian nuclear weapon would be very troubling to Iran's enemies. So who who is responsible? Yeah, that's uh, the the most worrying thing. Uh, the president of Iran, uh, Hassan Rouhani, has accused Israel of the killing of their top uh, nuclear scientist. And he said that they will not take hasty decisions, but uh, there will be retaliation. And it seems kind of clear that uh, some foreign country was behind this, this attack. Uh, actually, the former head of the CIA, John Brennan, said that the killing of the scientist was uh, criminal and highly reckless, and it risks the inflaming conflict in, in the region. He's, he said that in a really unstable region, the, the scientist's death risks uh, lethal regulation and a new round of, of regional uh, conflict. However, he, didn't, he, he said that he didn't have any information regarding if, in fact, a foreign uh, government was, was involved. But... Uh, however, the New York Times, which is mm. like a credible source, I say, yeah. uh, quoted three anonymous U.S. officials affirming that uh, Israel was actually behind the terrorist attack. Right. It's interesting because, you know, I mean, I think we can probably be confident that this wasn't America simply because if we remember back to January of 2020, I know that seems like several years ago, but sadly it was only a few months ago, when um, 
Qasem Soleimani was killed in a US airstrike, Trump immediately was on Twitter claiming responsibility, calling it a victory and everything like that. And you can imagine, given that Trump himself has been so anti-Iran in general, but also specifically Iran's nuclear capabilities. He broke off a, mm-hmm. a, a, a multilateral agreement that was in place between various European countries, America and Iran, to try and contain their nuclear development. If he'd done this, he would say it, right? Yeah, probably. Well, we don't know, maybe in this transition moment with, with the new government. But I think that's that's the key point right like um, the victory of biden in the, in the general election was seen as a, as a good opportunity to to calm the situation the the, the tensions that uh, went high after the the general uh, Soleimani assassination and he was actually biden uh, talking about um, taking washington back into the nuclear deal that uh, with iran that mm-hmm. trump abandoned and this assassination might complicate any future negotiations and and actually one of the main reasons that are thought to be behind this assassination is actually that that someone might be trying to uh, boycott the new international relations, the new foreign policy approach of Biden. Right. Because, yeah, you know that there might be a lot of interest is created in, in, in keeping the tension between Iran and, and the US. Right. It's difficult to see what happens from here. I mean... This is now the second time in a year that Iran has seen one of its top people assassinated in Iran by outside powers. I know they didn't do anything in response in January to the assassination of Soleimani. And that, I guess, is because, frankly, it would be suicidal to respond with military action when you know that you're up against the entire might of the United States military complex. But this is now the second time that a foreign country has made a martyr out of a top Iranian official. And you wonder if their pride, their national pride and the legitimacy of the Iranian government to be able to say we are in control of our country and we are not going to be bullied or told what to do by outside forces. They're being pushed to breaking point here. You worry that sooner or later they're going to react just because they have to be seen to be doing something. Yeah, that might be the case, but honestly, I don't think uh, we will see like a clear act of, of retaliation, especially because uh, what happened in January, in hierarchy terms, was uh, more more problematic because uh, Soleimani was a top top figure, and this guy was was it as well, but not at the at the same level. And yeah, Iran does not really want to get into into conflict, and especially. If Israel is behind it, you know, everybody knows that Israel is uh, greatly backed by the U.S. Mm. And actually the U.S. has been really vocal a lot of times that an Iranian attack on Israel will trigger a a military response from it. And Tehran knows this and they don't want it at all. But what we can expect, and it's something that Iran commonly does, is actually planning this retaliation through proxies. For example, right. with organizations such as Hezbollah or or that kind of of of, of yeah, they've activities. got Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in Gaza, uh, Shia militias in Iraq. They got the Houthis in Yemen. They have all of these kind of proxy militias that they could mobilize to do their do their dirty work for them. Yeah, and it's probably the U.S. if if it has something to do with this are being too confident on, on Iran not acting, but if, if this is in fact just a, a plan to to boycott uh, Biden's new foreign policy approach, I'd say it's too risky. Right. 
you should play with with this kind of stuff and especially in, in this region right well this is um it's clear the situation is very finely poised and hopefully it can remain in balance without spilling over into war um but anyway let's wrap that up and move on to our next story so now we're going somewhere different you're going to take us to nestle yeah uh so again nestle has been found as you said before not in the right way from a, on the right side from a moral perspective uh, the u.s supreme court held arguments tuesday about uh, whether the u.s chocolate companies such as nestle should be held uh, responsible for child slavery on the african uh, farms from which they buy most of their cocoa actually six african men are seeking damages from nestle usa uh, alleging that as chi- when they were children they were trafficked out of mali forced oh. to work long hours on Ivory Coast, which is like the main country of producing uh, cocoa. Uh, yeah, so they were uh, trafficked there to work for long hours on Ivory Coast uh, and kept uh, at night in, in locked shacks. And yeah, their, their attorneys say that um, the company should have better monitored their cocoa suppliers in, in West Africa and where about uh, two-thirds of the world's uh, cocoa is grown and child labor is widespread there. Yeah, I mean... So you have, have you heard and have you tasted uh, the Dutch chocolate, Tony's Chocolate Only? Yeah. Delicious. Mm-hmm. Really good. And not just delicious because it's delicious, but delicious because it's also very um, stridently anti-slavery. And I, this is crazy that in 2020 we're still talking about slavery, but we are. Because yeah. as you say, Nestle and lots of other companies have supply lines which are fueled by child slaves and other slaves who essentially are forced to work without money, without rights, any of that, just because it's cheap. Yeah. And Tony's Chocolonely are taking a stand against that and, you know, are doing everything they can. To, well, they say, and I don't see any reason not to believe them, that their whole supply line is completely fair and that yeah. the workers are paid to work and it's all, you know, mutually beneficial. But it astounds me that companies like Nestle can claim ignorance of this. Yeah, the position is clearly irresponsible. And, and the, the thing is, this is not something new. This is, a, a, um, I mean, the relation between Nestle and child labor comes ago all the time. In 2015, for example, The Guardian uh, informed that uh, children, children younger than fifth, that fifth, sorry, children younger than 15 continue to work at cocoa farms connected to Nestle. And Nestle actually more than a decade ago said that uh, they promised that they will end the use of child labor and, and supply chain. But what I think it's really annoying, because I was researching on, on this news and I just Google um, Nestle child labor. And the first thing you get, there is like a really well-designed web page where they say, yeah, we are totally against it. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, all kind of programs with fancy names to finish it. But the reality, as we see, it's completely different. Yeah, I mean, that's all PR. Frankly, when you get the stories from real people who are being forced to work on these farms, they sell a completely different story. And Nestle, there's no reason to believe Nestle. Nestle have shown time and time again that they are willing to do immoral things to make money. I mean, trying to grab a monopoly on water supply in towns, I think it's in, don't quote me on this, but I believe the story was that there was uh, a water supply in a town or a village in India and mm-hmm. Nestle essentially monopolized it and were trying to charge that town for access to that water. Insane things, things where, you know, it's really kind of like the Monopoly man rubbing his hands and, and you know, stuffing his pockets full of cash while poor people cry around him and he gloats and smokes a cigar. 
that's the kind yeah. of image I get in my head when it comes to Nestle. But the insane thing, it's not insane, it makes sense, but the reason they're able to keep doing this is because we keep buying Nestle products. Yeah, this is like a really interesting debate we always have with these uh, international big companies, right? Like, do we actually, as, as consumers, have uh, an option? Maybe maybe we do, but it is, I think it's really complex because I'm not talking about Nestle now, but, uh, you know, when you go to a supermarket, for example, and you want to buy some tomatoes, you have the two options, like the regular ones that probably uh, are not as fair morally like the fair trade ones. Mm -hmm. But can't you blame a family who is struggling economically of getting the cheaper option? Yeah. I mean, should we actually be held responsible for consuming uh, these kind of, of products that are not 100% uh, guaranteed? Yeah, you're right. Because they are often, you know, Nestle owns so many different brands. There are so yeah. many different things that you will see on your supermarket shelves, which you probably don't necessarily know are made by Nestle, but they are, and it will say it somewhere on the packet. But you're right. Often, you know, you want, I don't know, uh, some coffee, and there's a cheap coffee that is what you can afford, and so you buy it, and I do yeah. understand that for sure. It, it kind of feels like, to me, the solution needs to be from the top and from the bottom at the same time from the bottom i think as consumers we need to think about if we can if we have the money to buy perhaps a more expensive alternative coffee or whatever is we have to make that conscious decision and say i'm not going to support this company and remove that revenue and you remove that revenue you remove the incentive for them to keep behaving how they behave yeah. but as you say they will keep doing that because there will be people who have, you know, perhaps have little choice but to keep buying Nestle products. And that's where you need something from the top. You need regulation. You need someone who is putting rules in place and monitor monitoring them to make sure that these companies behave themselves because clearly they cannot be trusted to self-regulate. Yeah, this is this is literally like the dark face of, of globalization, right? I mean, we're talking about Nestle, but it's not just about uh, Nestle. Uh, this this example clearly reflects uh, a position which is pretty typical among uh, being international companies operating in regions of the world such as Africa or South or South Asia. And uh, yeah, so basically what they do is they move their production there. They want to save costs. They want to be more competitive by paying miserable wages. And the sad thing is that, okay, those are miserable uh, wages in comparison with the huge profit uh, they do worldwide. But in those regions, they are actually better wages so people is kind of forced to to, to work yeah. uh, there and for me what was really annoying in this case is has been like Nestle uh, answer to the to the yeah. their the response because they literally were saying yeah we are totally against it uh, but it is not our fault we just uh, sign contracts with uh, local farms and what happens there we don't know and it's like obviously you have to be responsible you have to be responsible like it's your it's your money that is funding this you are exactly. responsible and you know what yeah. is happening there yeah. i mean for for instance in in 2000 i think it was uh, it was probably early this year in 2019 but there was like a u.s uh, department of labor report that indicated that much of the world's chocolate supply relies on more than one million child workers Crazy. it's a reality that everybody knows and we definitely cannot turn a uh, blind eye. No, no. And I mean, for us and for people listening, I don't want to be like, you know, giving out kind of moral, I don't want to be moralizing, but if you can find an alternative and you can afford an alternative, buy it. Yep. It's You don't have to fund these companies 
you just need to be aware of the companies that are doing good things and the companies that are doing bad things. That's not difficult. Easy internet research and, you know, listen to this podcast and we'll let you know every time we hear something. And then take action. It might only be a small action, but it all matters. And not just taking action. I think it's also important to talk about it. Introduce these kind of conversations in your closest uh, circles because people need to know about this and it's not just about, okay, I'm not going to buy Nestle products anymore, but I want people to be aware what what goes behind the, the brand. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's our second story. And now on to our third and final story where we're going to be talking about the situation now faced by transgender teenagers in the UK. So this week there was a high court ruling in the British High Court that teenagers under the age of 16 can't be given hormone blockers to begin transitioning to a different gender. So I don't know if you know, but hormone blockers, the way they work is they essentially stop the hormones that would trigger puberty. Puberty blockers, yeah. Yeah. So they keep you in a kind of, in a state of stasis. And the idea is that that, kind of keeps things paused while you figure out what you want to do with your body and, you know, your identity and whether you want to transition or not. Because it makes sense. I I think for many transgender uh, teenagers who are suffering from, um, what's it called? Gender dysmorphia. Dysmorphia. Thank you. Um, Puberty can be an incredibly difficult time. You know, say you're a 12 year old boy who who has gender dysmorphia and you think that you need to be a girl and all of a sudden you start getting a hairy chest and a deeper voice and a beard and all the time whilst feeling like you're a girl, I, I can't. I haven't been through it, but I can only imagine how traumatizing that must be. Yeah, you, you see your body becoming what you don't want to be, so it has to be really traumatizing. Yeah, 100%. And there are, I think there was a study published this year which linked hormone blockers to lower rates of suicide and mental health issues amongst teens who have um, gender dysmorphia. So there is some evidence to suggest that this really helps and it can help to kind of stop a young person from going into crisis as their body seems to change beyond their control. That's one side of the argument. But the reason that this court case was introduced was there is a, um, the main plaintiff was Kira Bell. Uh, She's an adult now and at 16, she had started transitioning. She got Mm -hmm. hormone blockers. She was on those for a few years. And then I think she started taking testosterone And at the age of 20, she had a double mastectomy. So she had her breast removed and, you know, so like a a drastic um, surgical intervention to to push this along. And now she's changed her mind. She regrets it. She looks back and she says that she was, this wasn't right for her, that get it, that transitioning hasn't solved the problems that she had when she decided that she wanted to transition. And that this decision was made while she was too young and not mature enough to understand the consequences and life-changing consequences of what she was getting herself into. And essentially what's happened is the UK courts have agreed with her and they've said, you're right, people under the age of 16 aren't mature enough to consent to this in the same way that they're not mature enough to consent to a sexual relationship or they're not mature enough to vote because they don't understand all the implications of that vote and that kind of thing. So it all comes back to this idea that young people aren't mature enough, aren't sophisticated enough to appreciate the implications and outcomes of the decisions that they make. And it's a big call. 
right? I mean, this is the state saying that kids don't have control over their own bodies. They're too yeah. young to have control over their own bodies. And there are lots of organisations that are calling bullshit on that. There's a um, an action group called Mermaid who are specifically there to help uh, children and teenagers who want to transition to you know understand their options yeah. and to begin the process and stuff like that and you have bigger organizations some that we've all heard of like stonewall um mm -hmm. who are also have an opinion on this and are also keen to protect the rights of transgender people and they point out that actually you know what's worse making a bad decision or going through your teenage years in a state of mental anguish because yeah. you're being forced to suffer through puberty and a life lived in a body that doesn't feel like your own. I, I can see both sides of the debate. What, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. It's such a complex debate. I mean, first thing I would like to say that I don't, I don't feel like I'm the right person to have a strong opinion on this because this is like a really complex issue with a lot of different points with a lot of different uh, valid yeah. arguments and, in and both sides yeah and it's difficult it's very difficult to have an opinion when you can't have and don't have that lived experience yeah but, but what i mainly think is in this kind of topics uh, establish a regulation it's so complex because every case is different right yeah you need to study every case in detail knowing the context knowing uh circumstances of of everything uh, around this this uh, this case, so yeah, probably what I won't agree at all is that a judge should be the one making that decision, right? Maybe I don't know a psychiatrist could be a more um, more adequate person for it because it's kind of the same thing with uh, with um, 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 maybe I'm changing the topic a little bit here, but when you have like judges uh, judging uh, gender-based violence uh, mm -hmm. issues. If that judge doesn't have a um, a, form, a gender a, f a formation in gender, like some background in gender, they they are not the right person for it. So I think in this in this case could be a little bit the same. But yeah, uh, you can have like valid arguments in both sides. That's yeah. that's totally true. Yeah, um, you know, it, this is to help um, our listeners understand if you didn't know already that the organisations are part of the National Health Service in the UK. Yeah. Um, the main one here is the Tavistock Centre in London. That's been the that's where uh, Kira Bell first underwent her treatment, and they're the main centre in the UK for kids to go and start exploring the idea of transitioning. And there are psychotherapists there. There are counsellors. Mm -hmm. There is medical examination. There is, in theory, a lot of process in place to help the child and their parents yeah. understand what they're going through. To make sure, because I think one of the issues is that there have been instances where a child has been maybe trying to grapple with their sexual identity. So they're not sure if they're gay or not. They're, they may have been abused and bullied. They may have parents who are pushing them for yeah. some unknown reason to transition. And all of these things are problems to which transitioning to another gender is not the solution. So they transition and then they realize they still have those problems and this wasn't the answer. But you do have therapists yeah, and stuff in place to help with that. The issue is that Kira, in Kira Bell's case, she had three one-hour consultations before mm -hmm. she was given the hormone treatment. Yeah. So even though in theory there is a lot of opportunity to discuss and to really get to the bottom of what's going on in a kid's head, it doesn't always work that way. And sometimes it's really fast and all of a sudden you're caught up, you're, you're set along a road 
that you can't necessarily step off of and and the next thing you know you've had surgery and your life has been changed forever yeah but it well can be the opposite thing right like okay i'm saying i'm not mature enough to make the decision yet i'm gonna keep feeling bad feeling like i'm in a body that it's not mine uh, for a couple of years till i'm 16 and maybe when you're 16 it's too late right yeah. maybe there has been a lot of uh, mental health issues to that so i think that's what the study pointed at right that uh Actually, puberty blockers have uh, decreased the number of, of uh, young suicides and all of that. So, I don't know. It's, it's what we uh, keep saying. For each argument, you have a valid counter-argument as well. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you that each individual case should be yeah. studied. Because you shouldn't. we definitely shouldn't be, as a society, denying the feelings of kids who are starting to wonder if they want to transition. Yeah. But we should investigate them properly. They yeah, should maybe. be given all given the time and the professional help to understand how they why they're thinking how they're thinking why they're feeling how they're feeling and then help guide them to the right decision even if that means slowing things down and taking it really slowly just to make sure yeah. that what is a hugely life-changing decision is the right one yeah maybe we should also create uh, um, a context in which when they struggle with all this uh, with all these issues, they feel safe. They feel like they're not going to be judged, that it's okay to take their time to, to reflect about it. So our position there has to be that one, like creating a context of, of complete normality where they can feel uh, okay with, with reflecting about it. Yeah, yeah. So it's a monumental decision that's going to leave some people feeling relieved and other people bitterly disappointed. Um, it's worth noting that they, will, they are... Um, applying for an appeal against the decision so this isn't necessarily finalized yet but it's certainly a big moment in the ongoing conversation around this and uh, I guess we can only wait and see where it goes next but that is it for our major news stories today thank you listeners for keeping with us I hope you enjoyed the debates we're going to end as ever with fun our fact. funny our fun fact and this is less a fun fact and more just perhaps the funniest news story to come out of 2020 so far so yeah. ricardo have you heard about the uh the male orgy in brussels that was busted by the police i have heard and i also have her who was involved with which yeah. makes the funniest uh, part of the story I think. please please tell us so basically uh, the police interrupted in a male orgy and apparently one uh, MIP was there and it wasn't any random MIP, it was uh, an Hungarian MIP from the political party of Viktor Orban. One who, one who has been very outspokenly anti-gay. Exactly. In the one past. that literally wrote in an article that uh, marriage is just a thing between a man and a woman. Right, and yeah. yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is like when, when, the, when the police uh, get, got there, he tried to jump to the, through the window and he Did hurt, he? Yeah, and he, <laughs> he hurt himself. Was he naked? Yeah, and he hurt himself and literally uh, when he was uh, jumping through the window, he said something like, yeah, I have parliamentary immunity, you cannot do anything, but... Yeah, yeah, it's like, well, mate, I mean, apart from the fact that you're having an orgy, which, you know... That's fine. It's well, not a, maybe it's not maybe in COVID times it's not that but fine. But COVID, mate, yeah. you know, there's nothing, there's nothing, I'm pretty sure that COVID can be sexually transmitted. So it's not a good idea, lads. Not to mention that orgies, they tend to be, you know, in quite close proximity, I yeah. imagine. Haven't been one in one myself. The funniest, <laughs> the funniest detail I heard, and I think this is from the Mail Online, so let's take it with a pinch of salt, is that yeah. apparently when the police arrived, the uh, orgy members thought they were strippers. <laughs> and so started started trying to take their clothes off, but uh, 
ultimately it didn't didn't end as they expected. Yeah, another crazy story in the Brussels bubble. Yeah. All right, that's everything we've got time for this week. Thank you for joining us and thanks, Ricardo. Thank you. See you next week. See you next time. Bye-bye.